Blog Talk Radio. This is Catherine. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. We've got Amanda live tweeting the show tonight while Ellie has the night off. So I'm joined on the line by my co-host, Jean. Hi, Jean. How are you? I'm good, Catherine. Hi. How are you? Great. I'm so happy to be here and uh, to be with you. I know. And I I miss you, too. And I have to be honest since that's tonight's show, and say that I woke up from a drinking dream this morning. And so I have to share about it because I haven't spoken to other sober people today, and that's how I stay sober. And I just, I woke up and I could just taste the champagne. And in the dream, I went straight into wolf mode. I just, I didn't care what happened next. I just wanted to find more alcohol. And I found myself plotting about, how to lie to all of you and to my recovery community about the fact that I had relapsed. And, you know, I woke up and I was just so relieved that it was only a dream, but I have to say that it still shook me up. Hmm. Those dreams can get you, hey? I know. So, you know, I thought it was an apt setup, actually, for tonight's show on Honesty, just, you know, sharing about that. And, when we're drinking, we may find ourselves really mired in dishonesty, and this can be subtle or extreme. We may cover up our drinking and tell lies or exaggerations to avoid consequences, responsibility, or conflict. And dishonesty is at the root of denial, including telling ourselves we can safely drink when we have evidence to the contrary. Lying may even become a habit as we hide from our addiction to cover up our true mental and emotional health to protect our ego, reputation, and self-image. Choosing sobriety may be the first truly honest thing we've done in a while. And on this episode, we'll be talking about how honesty has shaped our recovery, the choices we have to make to get and stay sober, how our definitions of honesty have evolved, and how dishonesty can figure into the 11 stages of relapse if we let it. So I'd like to start by welcoming tonight's lovely guest, Jill. Hi, Jill. Hi, how are you? Great, how are you? We're so happy to have you on the show. Good, I am so happy to be here, too. Um, When I first um, started sort of delving into whether I was an alcoholic or not, and I did what we all did, I Googled, am I alcoholic? And I was led to the bubble hour. And so it's just, it's really... um, Ellie was one of the first people I reached out to. So it's just really an honor to be here. Oh, that's great. We love that lineage. That's amazing. So so glad to have you here and have you coming full circle. Um, So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit bit about yourself and your recovery story. Sure. Um, So I got sober two and a half years ago, Um, two years, five months, and some change. 
Um, and I, I grew up in a um, really a perfectly, I guess I could say, a perfectly dysfunctional family. Um, but I was very, very loved, and um, it wasn't an alcoholic household. Um, but I was, I was like, sometimes I feel like I was born sad, and I felt things really, really intensely, even from, even from just when I was a little girl. Um, I can still just vividly remember feeling things so strongly and not knowing how to, not knowing how to deal with those emotions. And um, I had three older brothers, considerably older than I was, and um, I cried a lot. And it was really, really hard for my um, for my family to know how to deal with me. And so I was told not to cry. You know, sis, you can't cry all the time. And that was, that really, that, that stuck with me all through my life. And it still does. I have to sort of fight that. But um, hiding my pain was really at the crux of my alcoholism. And so I started drinking in high school, like most other people, and drank into college. And um, I think I thought probably back then that I, I drank like everyone else. But the truth is I didn't drink like everyone else. Um, I, you know, was always the first one at the bar, last one to leave. And, you know, and and, and that didn't really, I didn't really um, leave that life behind after college. I moved to New York City, had a great job, but I just kept drinking. And I feel like sometimes, you know, New York City can be such a lonely, lonely place. And so I drank that loneliness away. And um, I think it was, pro- I was, it was probably, I just turned 40, but it was probably in my early 20s that, that it finally dawned on me that I was an alcoholic. But I didn't really, I just, I didn't really know that there was any other way of life. That was just, just the way it was. That's just how it was going to be for me. Um, I drank my problems away, other people went for a run or whatever it might be. Um, So I went through um, a really traumatic experience when I was in New York. And I can remember that, I remember when I stopped drinking in 2013, that I knew knew the number of days that I had not drank since 2001. Like that's astounding that I could actually count the number of days that I did not drink. And, And I just... Um, just burying all of this pain that I had, and um, to speak sort of to what we were talking about with honesty, that really is the crux of that was dishonesty was the crux of my alcoholism, and it was it was compartmentalizing my life and it was um, hiding my pain, and there was this I tell this story in recovery meetings. Um, it happened about probably four years before I finally quit drinking, um, I was living in Chicago, and I was in this grad program where the books were, they're just enormously big, and I had gotten off the back of a Chicago City bus, and I was weighed down by all these books, my laptop, and I rolled underneath, I fell off the bus, and I wasn't drunk, um, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, which doesn't really mean much to an alcoholic, but... I actually was not drunk, and so off the bus and rolled under it, 
and I was in so much physical pain. But I was just, I was so, I was determined not to let anyone see that pain. And so I crawled out from underneath the bus and walked perfectly normal to the to the bench and sat down and actually like crossed my leg and did like a little Hollywood flip of my hair, you know, just determined that I did not want these people to see that I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain that I was in crutches and a boot for the next two months. And I think I, I tell that story because it's really easy to, it's easier to quantify physical pain than it is emotional pain. And so that was just the extent that I would go to to hide even my physical pain and my emotional pain. And um, when I finally um, decided that it, what happened was I think I, I, my eyes started opening and I started seeing people in recovery. And I saw people who weren't drinking and um, it was just, and I started actually reaching out to them. Just like I said that I reached out to um, Ellie and it was like the stars were just perfectly aligned and I just decided to to give it a shot to quit drinking. And, um, you know, my bottom... My bottom was actually probably many, many years before I quit drinking, actually quit drinking. And I hear a lot of people say that they quit drinking or they stopped or they would drink to um, sort of numb their feelings. But I actually drank to feel my feelings and to sort of get my outsides to match my insides because when I was drinking, it was appropriate to cry and to feel sad and but it wasn't appropriate to do that when I was sober. So I drank to actually feel. And um, so I was sad a lot because I drank a lot. And there was just one morning that um, I was laying on the couch and I was basically in this fetal position. And I walked into my kitchen after a night of drinking and there was milkshake all over my kitchen ceiling and spaghetti balls everywhere and meatballs everywhere. And um, I realized that I couldn't hide the drinking for myself any anymore because every night before I would quit, before I would go to bed, pass out basically, um, I would be sure that my place was spotless. I, you know, I drank out of a coffee mug and, and and I lived by myself, which is you know funny that I would drink out of a coffee mug. Who am I hiding it from? Or well, hiding it from myself because <laughs> I was in such denial, you know. But I had just reached this this bottom. This, just utter sadness that it just hit me. There just has to be a better way to live. And um, and so that was two and a half years ago. And it is really remarkable. There is such a better way to live. And um, that is, I think, that's, I'll just wrap up with, with that, really. And, well, Joe, I, I'm so happy that you're here, and you know we've been on this journey together since since the beginning, and I I just I'm really feeling everything that you're saying here because you know even just starting off by saying that you felt like you were born sad and you feel things so strongly, and then told not to have those feelings, and the sort of kind of creating a whole life around that, and. Mm-hmm. For me, it was kind of hard to call that dishonest 
you know, right. as I got sober, but like, but it is. So, mm-hmm. and I know, I know exactly what you're saying here. Um, and, and when I say, I want to, I want to say, you know, when I say that my my brothers would tell me, you know, don't cry, you can't cry. I have to, I have to qualify that. Like, really, they were just trying to protect me. You know, sure. Like, yeah. You can't walk through life with, you know, crying and feeling sad and reacting to things so strongly. And um, yeah. but but they didn't but they didn't I didn't learn any other tools. You know, so it was just very, very, very so for for anybody who's listening who is really reacting so much to this as as I am, um there's an incredible book called The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. I think it's spelled A-R-O-N. Um, and she's done research. And this is the most triggery thing for me. I found this book actually in sobriety. And about 20% of the people, according to this woman's research, can be classified as highly sensitive people, HSPs. And... Um, and it's amazing. She's done studies on twins and, you know, one would be an HSP and one wouldn't be. And it also goes into kind of tips and tactics of, you know, how to how to cope with being an HSP. Um, and it was so triggery. I read this book like, I don't want this to be true. I want this to be a bunch of poppycock and... You know, it wasn't. <laughs> and also her website has um, a link for a little quiz that you can take. Are you an HSP? And also, do you have an HSP for a child? So if anybody's a, a parent out there who might have a kind of reactive kid, anyways, um, that's just an alternative to maybe the path that that I took of drinking. <laughs> um <laughs> But anyway, so, you know, there's so much here, and you correlated a lot of that, Jill, to um, dishonesty and and then getting sober, what honesty looked like there. So, you know, let's kind of go chronologically through this. So let's say what did dishonesty look like when we were actually drinking and, like, specifically around alcohol? So, Jean, like, how about you? What What kind of forms did that take for you? I think the biggest form for me was that it it helped kind of um, reinforce this image of myself that I tried to maintain. So mm. I was kind of denying who I really was, and I sort of had a bigger, better public version of myself that you know wasn't wasn't completely inauthentic, but it certainly wasn't always what I wanted. And I think that the the burden of that, like I just kind of chafed under that costume a little. <laughs> mm. so I think the drinking helped. It wasn't that I drank to be a bolder person. It was that I drank after to ease the discomfort of having to put on that sort of armor for the world. And um, right. so that's what it looked like for me. If I if I was going to um, I was a performing songwriter, and um, I, if I was going to do a show, I would never drink before the show. But I'd have so much anxiety and discomfort and dread, and and then I would just drink out of relief afterwards to just try to just come down from all those emotions. And I think that did was really true know? of a lot of things that I did. Pardon? Did people did people know how much you were drinking? 
No, your no. family or something. Yeah. Mm-mm, no, I mean it's it's perfectly acceptable to have a nice glass of wine after a show, right, or two, mm-hmm. and then you know people don't really realize that you're coming home and having a couple more after that to just to come down and fall asleep. So that was part of it. Right. But I also had a, a very big business persona and um and did a lot of PR work for my business and and that was out of my comfort zone but I felt like it was part of my job as part of my duty as a business owner to promote my company and to be very active and engaged and um and it was hard it was just it I'm a shy person by nature and so I was I think I just was continually denying who I really was and doing what I thought I mm. should do and had to do and that was just very uncomfortable for me, and that just required a lot of what I thought was self-care or, you know, sort of self-medicating the anxiety or the nerves or whatever after the fact was that I would sort of drink as a as a depressant afterwards to come down from all that heightened emotion and discomfort. Yeah, that's exhausting. It is exhausting. And, and so, Jill, I mean, you, you offered us this really powerful picture of drinking out of a coffee mug even while you were home alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what about you? I mean, did you do you feel like you were – how open were you about how much you were drinking or even with yourself, you know, how honest sure. were you? Mm-hmm. It's It's funny talking about the coffee mugs because I know that because some people, when they first get sober, they need to throw out all their wine glasses. Me, my wine glasses are still in my kitchen cupboard because I never used them. It was like the coffee mugs for me that were a trigger. <laughs> so, um, but, so, right, so I lied to myself. That was that was the big thing. And when I first got sober and told my family, everyone was really surprised because I did do a pretty good job of hiding it. Um, I was... I suppose what they would call a functional alcoholic. And to me, you know, sure, I guess I was a functional alcoholic if you call sleepwalking through life a functionality, you know. Um, but I um, I would drink before events. I would drink after events. And people were always surprised when I would get, you know, pretty drunk at a cocktail party um, after a glass or two of wine. And that was generally because I probably already have a bottle of wine at home. And, right. Um, and so, and I would, you know, after that cocktail party, no matter how drunk I was, I would go and get more wine because I would need just to top off my evening by myself. But I did a phenomenal job during my active addiction of pushing people away. So I really didn't have any serious romantic relationships in my active addiction, unless, of course, they were other alcoholics. Um, so I did I did a pretty good job of, of um, essentially compartmentalizing my life. And um, I would, I was very particular of who I spent my time with and when I spent my time with, um, when I spent my time with them. I wouldn't, um, you know, if I had particular girlfriends that I would work out with, well, I would have to see them in the morning because I couldn't work out in the evening, or I couldn't work out in the evenings because I'd be drinking. And so, and I knew if I wanted to get really drunk, who I would spend my time with. And I learned through my recovery, you know, getting honest about that, seeing how I really hurt people because they had no idea what was going on with me and why I was pushing them out of out of my life. 
So that's really, I think that the biggest, the biggest thing, the eye opener for me was just getting honest with myself. And like I said, walking into the kitchen that morning and seeing the milkshake all over the ceiling and realizing that I couldn't even lie to myself anymore. That was mm-hmm. the final. That was the final thing for me. Jill, I'm, I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about compartmentalizing your life. Like we've heard, uh, I think um, it's Brene Brown that talks about the bento box. You know, where we're mm-hmm. like, well, right now I'm this person, and then later I'm, you know, now I'm doing this. Right. But when I'm doing this, I never talk or think about doing that. So mm-hmm. if, if you were, say, at work or doing something, you know, that wasn't part of your drinking life, were you really invested in sort of protecting that? secret from oh. the now? Like, would you have ever said to anyone that you drank two bottles of wine last night, or would that be something you would guard from that moment? I, I would definitely guard, right, I would definitely guard that. And um, something I wanted to, to speak to this, something else I wanted to say was, the only person I was, I was truly honest with, or number of people I was honest with, were my therapist. And um, I was seeing therapists in 2004 and 2005, and um, I would be honest with how much I was drinking. I would, you know, I don't even want to, I really don't even want to say how much I was drinking, but, you know, I, I could drink 18, 20 beers in an evening and maybe a half a bottle, a bottle of wine. And so I would tell my therapist that, and each one that I told, told me that they thought I needed to go to AA. And that would be the last time I would see that therapist. You know, it was, mm-hmm. I could be honest, I could be honest, I could put myself out there, and as soon as I was vulnerable, that was the last time that person would see me. You know, it wasn't just because they were telling me something I didn't want to hear. It was because I just opened myself up to them. So, right, I, I tried yeah. to... You know, and I think this, this your examples that both of you are giving really show how subtle dishonesty can can really be, even if we kind of think of ourselves as fundamentally honest people, like, what are you talking about? I've never stolen money or, you know, whatever. Or maybe we have, but, you know, we can kind of parse these things. And I, I've said this before on the show, but I'll just mention it here that, you know, there's, there's a friend in, in my recovery community who says that the two biggest lies are I'm okay and everything's fine. And right. It, you guys are giving great examples of how those lies can play themselves out in our mm-hmm. lives and and also how isolation is fundamentally dishonest because it's kind of that I'm okay, everything's fine, but I'm just going to be over here by myself <laughs> doing my thing. <laughs> what, what, what about you, Catherine? Did that play out in your life as well the same way? Yeah, so I was thinking about around alcohol itself, I would always say like, you know, I kind of knew those online AA tests, for example, would say, like, do you ever drink alone? So I was always really careful to just be, you know, drunk in public. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when but when my guy would be out of town every now and again, that would be, like, the most joyful time of the year because that meant I could go out and get two, three bottles of wine and cupcakes and junk food and just, and I really wouldn't even eat the food. And then that's when I would like 
And I can remember one time going when it finally, it, you know, I had like the first drink and then it hit me. And I remember smiling to myself like I was so happy. I was going to get an, I remember walking down the hall and going to get another glass of wine. And I was just, this was living. And I was totally isolated. And I've shared this on the show before that, I mean, it really took me probably a year and a half into my recovery, a little more than that, to really start getting honest about even how I was feeling and letting people in. I was really committed to doing just that story of like falling under the bus. That would have been me. That was me. I was eight. I was, I was like seven years old and I fell off my friend's um, swing set. We were like horsing around in the swing set and I fell down and really hurt my back. And I, I was afraid to tell my mom and I never, I never did tell her actually. And I have back problems to this day because I did that. I was committed. I'm okay. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm that, thinking, that's a really you know, powerful story, Jill. That that bus story is really powerful. It actually really yeah. shook me up because I was right there in your body feeling. I, I think a lot of us would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just like how you said, tossed your hair as if yes, I'm perfectly yeah, fine. Hollywood I flip. fall under yeah. a bus every day. This right. is no big deal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because a couple of my a couple of my girlfriends and I in recovery, we have this thing that you know when they ask how we are, if we're not okay, we say I'm totally fine, and that's like <laughs> that's the that's the clue. Like that's I'm not clue. fine, you know, totally fine, totally fine, we, totally fine. <laughs> yeah, that story took yes, it gave me a flashback to being a kid in school and we um we got our clothes from hand-me-downs from cousins. So a couple times a year a big box would arrive from these cousins and I would get a dress out of the deal. And um I remember wearing one of these dresses to school in elementary and two of the bigger boys, they were cool boys. I was for some reason walking down the hallway alone and they said your dress is undone. And I was like, what? And I just kept walking like it was no big deal. And they they shouted, your zipper's broken, your dress is undone. It had a zipper down the back. I mean, this is 1972 like maybe, so you can picture this dorky dress I was wearing. And I felt it, and the zipper was broken. And I did exactly what you said, Jill. I just threw my little head up as if I wanted it that way. And I walked down the hall, and I went in the bathroom, and I bawled my eyes out. But there was no way that I was going to admit that that zipper was broke. I mean, they could see it, but I was so invested in my, I I am okay, even at that age, right? Like, it's really intrinsic to our character, that I'm okay, and I'm, I've got this. Don't give me any attention. I do not want attention. Uh, I only want attention for being perfect, and even then I just want you to kind of not notice me because I'm perfect, not Harold. And, Jean, you said said something there that I think is really meaningful, which is something like it's intrinsic to who we are. Yeah. And for me, this idea of being not letting anybody in, not being vulnerable, not asking for help, doing everything everything on my own and even 
my first marriage, like kind of purposely marrying an active alcoholic who was unreliable so I could control everything um, and sort of shore up this idea of this is who I am. This is what the Buddhists talk about of like grasping or holding on to our stories and like believing our stories that that's, well, that's just who I am. I'm just a girl who will get run over by a bus practically and flip my hair and keep walking. Like, Mm -hmm. and we become really invested in, or, you know, I think Amanda has said this on the show that she, she was not hiding her drinking. She said that she was like, yeah, I'm the party girl. What about it? That's just who I am. That's who I am. And that's who I'm always going to be. And that's it. And Amanda would get up from the bus and say, holy shit, I fell under a bus. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so some people right. really have that. But I think we almost feel, like, ashamed of something. Like, did you feel that, Jill? Like, was there some kind of shame involved and you were trying to, like, resist the shame by denying that you'd just fallen under a bus? Or like, I think there was embarrassment. Embarrassment, and, yeah. Right. You know, and I wouldn't want anyone, even though... It's really easy to see when I'm embarrassed because um, yeah. I blush easily. Like the wind blows and I blush, so it's really okay. easy to see. So you know, it'd be, you know, I have this, you know, I blush, but then I'm trying to act differently. You know, yeah. it's it's just I. It's, it's such a conflict in my mind, and yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot of shame. I guess for falling under the bus, but just. Shame, you know, like I said, I use that example because physical pain is easy to quantify. But really, I was yep. inside, you know, just generally I was feeling just emotional pain about a lot of different things going on in my life. And that's what I had to hide from people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that is, um, you know, that's hard to quantify. It's hard to quantify emotional pain. You know, I feel very, 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 very sad. You know, I mean... And that doesn't really that doesn't really tell anything, but mm-hmm. um, so I think that was, what I'm hearing yeah. in that too is like if I let myself feel this, then everything else I've been holding back might come flooding out too. Mm-hmm. Like yes. if I if there's right. a crack in my armor, then I might lose it all. And yeah, you know, and that's that's really what happened when when I got sober. I mean, I like for two and a half years and I still feel like that glacier around my heart is still melting mm. and um, I, I still cry easily but I also am able to have more appropriate emotional responses to things so I don't necessarily feel things as intensely as what I used to um, it's, it's interesting how that has happened just to see my, my different reactions to things and mm-hmm. how I, I now I, I really do try to stay pretty even keel. I try not to get too sad and I try not to get too happy either because both any sort of extreme emotion for me um, is triggering. It makes me, you know, it makes me want to drink actually. So yeah. I just try to stay pretty even keel. And I know when I say that sometimes people must think, God, what a, you know, what a bore. But to me, it's just, perfect balance and a really wonderful way to to live and to walk through life. Just right. 
So let's let's talk about what about denial and kind of other reasons that we told ourselves we couldn't get sober. So we're sitting there and we're drinking and then we're kind of thinking this is a problem, but fill in the blank. What about you, Jean? I just felt like it was too big a part of my life and that it would that I would ruin other people's fun if I wasn't there drinking. Mm. So I remember writing about this on on Pickled when I first got sober that I was really dreading telling my husband that I'd quit. I didn't tell him for 10 days after I'd quit. And and he didn't know quite how bad it was. So you know, I really didn't want him to talk me out of quitting. But I really hated the thought of like every picture postcard in my mind of our vacations involved alcohol. Now, why? Mm-hmm. Because I made sure it did cuz that was <laughs> right. <laughs> that was my motive for a lot of things, but um yeah. But I just I thought, well, you know, we like food and we like restaurants and you know, we like this place and we like to go there and have, you know, this drink there and we had cosmos at the top of the mark at sunset. You know, like I was remembering all these really heightened moments and they all involved mm-hmm. alcohol. And so I just think I invested in those things and just they were it was almost like a catch twenty two. Like those the alcohol was part of those moments because I propped up I used events to prop up my drinking. I'd have parties so that you know, like you you're always trying to involve yourself in alcocentric situations. But then also I told myself that, you know, I couldn't have those moments without the alcohol. So that was a big part of it for me. And then I just really felt like I needed it, like I had set up this life for myself where I went 100 miles an hour all day. Yeah. Yeah. And I needed something to, you know, I needed that brick on my head at the end of the day. I needed it. It was was a tool that I used. And, um, of course, it wasn't working very well and I wasn't enjoying it. But I didn't know how else I was going to do all the things that I did. And I felt like well, the world would fall apart if I stopped doing all the things I did. So Yeah, and that's so amazing that, like, it really doesn't occur to us that we could stop going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. That we could change other parts of our life. Like, I, for, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for me, that was true. I, I didn't – I was like, well, this – it's impossible to change this life, and you would drink too if you had my life and my exactly. anxiety and my stress. And yeah. and you know, you know, and I was really invested in my story of like you would drink too if you had my problems. That's why it was like really mm-hmm. convenient to be in a in a you know abusive alcoholic marriage. Like that was that was terrifically convenient <laughs> to my story of like the girl with trauma. And now she is victim, and now she is allowed to drink. Right. I mean, I, I say it kind of in jest, but like the real truth of it is, is that's that was my story, and and I didn't believe I could change any other part of my life. And it's sort of amazing. It's like, nope, have to have the alcohol. And you know what? Here's something I've learned in the long run. Like, there's a couple things that I did that were sort of like big, important things in my world, and I stopped doing them because they ran their course, and I let someone else take over, and you want to know what? They didn't do a very good job. That thing that Mm -hmm. I created and made into a a big, successful entity was very diminished when someone 
wasn't running it at that level anymore. And Hmm. that has been hard to see. And yet I also think that the success of that, that I kind of was part of making, was kind of a lie too because you shouldn't have to ruin your life. You shouldn't have to drink yourself to sleep at night. You know, Like the success of that really shouldn't come at the expense of someone's health and wellness. And oh my gosh! I hope Amanda tweets that line because <laughs> I need to. I need to write it down and, and tattoo the world it on my kept face. Turning, and now that I'm not yeah. doing that, yeah, it's not as great anymore. But I'm doing other things. I have a grandson yeah. who I spend time with. I'm writing a book. I do this podcast. Like, I do other great things that don't eat me alive. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) And also the thing about vacation, I mean, we we actually, we hear this a lot, and I think I use these excuses for, well, at least two, maybe three years of like, well, I can't get sober. I won't get sober yet because it's the July 4 bank holiday weekend coming up. I can't get sober yet because my birthday is coming up or we're going on vacation or this wedding or like I think a lot of people um, yeah. we hear that a lot we hear it use all the that. time yeah. yeah how about you Jill what what were some of the things that you told yourself why you couldn't get sober you know well first of all I, I getting sober was not in my vocabulary it literally was not in my vocabulary I didn't know that it was an action I could take um, and so I didn't I, I wasn't looking that far into the future. I wasn't thinking about vacations. I wasn't thinking about birthdays without alcohol. I was just trying to like, picture an evening on the couch without a bottle of wine. You know, mm-hmm. it was like that, that I, I just, I couldn't, when I first got sober, I just couldn't think that far ahead. And um, I was just trying to figure out how to turn off the autopilot of coming home from work and going directly to the grocery store. So I just that 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 was what what I had to start with was just really like one evening at a time without without drinking. Um, it was more like I started thinking about those things more when I did get into recovery, and I started sort of future tripping about how hard this bridal shower was going to be, how hard this wedding was going to be, how hard the vacation was going to be without alcohol. And and frankly, those things, those first were really hard, and but but they were hard because I you know I had built them up, and and I, I anticipated that they were going to be really hard without alcohol. And um, the reality is, all of those events are so much more fun without alcohol. Mm-hmm. Although I will say, my first wedding sober, uh, I should have left about three hours in. Instead, I was in the bridal party, so I had to stay for the duration of the night. And um, that was probably, I probably should have had an escape plan, but lesson learned. Um, so all of the, everything is like so much, it's just, um, it's so much easier sober, all of those events. But, you know, I remember them, and I don't embarrass myself. I don't embarrass anyone else. And that's, that was more... And- it was more for me, like, once I got sober, how to deal with those events. And right. it was more like, okay, should I stay sober? Because I have this coming up. Yeah. 
But you also bring up the good point of future tripping because future mm-hmm. tripping is also a kind of form of dishonesty, right? Where like, yeah. and I've I I often say this on the show that I I got from Byron Katie, um, which is asking myself, is that true? So like, you know, oh, going to this dinner is going to be is is going to be so hard. Well, is that true? Well, I don't know. I'm not there yet. Right. And then I started realizing that, like, it, it's only hard if I make it hard. Exactly. So, so if I, de- only if I decide it's going to be hard. Yeah. And, you know, even if people were saying to me, why aren't you drinking? Like, that was only going to, I decided that, like, that was only going to trigger me if I let it trigger me. And this right. is where my strong ego can <laughs> can come in handy, mm-hmm. but. Like, is that true? And I just, I was, I forced myself, you know, to to be honest about those things. But, like, what about was, when we actually, was, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just thinking that was a really hard thing to, um, that was something I had a lot of fear around. What am I going to do when someone asks me why I'm not drinking? You know, in the first six, yeah. six eight months, like, I was, I was obsessed with how am I going to answer that question? Well, yeah, really, no one really cares, you know, unless someone probably has maybe a problem of their own. Then they're really noticing that you're not drinking. And, um, but for the most part, it's not a big deal. Um, I realized, no, really, I was the one that was drinking the most at all of these events. Everyone else (laughs) probably was having a couple glasses of wine, maybe, you know. So no one, they just don't, people don't think anything of it. And that was a big, uh, a big realization of pleasant surprise that people really don't care, and I just sort of need to get over myself. And I, I want to jump in on that because since this is a show about being honest, I think we can talk for a minute about the degrees of honesty that we share mm-hmm. with other people because mm-hmm. you've, it does feel really awkward at first to know what to say, and yeah. I don't think it's really socially necessary to go to a party and everyone that says, oh, you're not drinking, say, well, I quit drinking. Or, you know, you don't have to tell everybody that if you're not comfortable. And so when we talk about being honest in recovery, it's that we have to be honest with ourselves. And it's okay to to just sort of gloss over things that if that person hasn't earned the right to hear your story about why you're not drinking, then you don't need to go there with them, and they probably don't want to hear it. It's kind of like, exactly. how are you? They don't really want to hear right. that you're having your period and you have cramps. You know, they just yes, they want, they to, want to hear I'm totally fine. fine. How they are want you? to hear that I'm totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's 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 sort of that level of it's not dishonest to choose not to share that with someone, but it is right. really important that you're honest with yourself. So, if you, what's important is not is is to be honest about what you're feeling. We've talked a lot about not feeling our feelings and denying our feelings. I found it really helpful to to when I'm feeling anxious, instead of telling myself that I'm these people aren't I don't like these people or this this isn't a good party or whatever, I'd say, No, I'm you know what? I'm feeling anxious right now. Why why am I feeling anxious? What's going on? Okay, what can I really do with this emotion? And you know what? I would have died before I ever admitted that I had anxiety. I thought that was for weak people. And I wanted to be a strong person. And so I would 
I would turn that anxiety into like other people are being rude and they're making me uncomfortable. So that was a lie, right? Getting honest yeah. with myself has really made a big difference and it's made things like going to events and um, just actually acknowledging my feelings, feeling them. They do pass really quickly. Those first few times you go to something and someone asks you what you want to drink, um, have a few prepared lines rehearsed, um, even just practice saying them out loud at home so that you can blurt them out a little easier when you're there. But Like what, Jean? Well, I, I actually just practiced saying, like, I would like a tonic water with lime or whatever. I was, you know, soda with grapefruit juice. And if and I would also practice saying things like, oh, I'm driving tonight. Or, oh, no, I'm not having any. I'm just, you know, I'm on a cleanse. Or I would just practice some phrase, even just something that seems really casual. Because once you've said it once, you can say it again. It just comes easier. Mm-hmm. So write them I down that, and, I, and then say them. Before you go, I, t- I also learned early on that no is a complete sentence, which mm-hmm. boggled my mind. I I didn't realize that that was that was the case, and so at first I fiddled around with like, oh no, I'm I'm on antibiotics, or oh no, yeah. I'm I'm on a diet. Like I would say, at first I started saying, oh yeah, I'm just trying to lose a few pounds, but then my face would be like in a pie, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, because I needed the sugar, so, so that then I realized that that lie wasn't going to hold up. So then I just realized, like, no, thank you was yeah. easy. Why aren't you drinking? Not feeling it. And now, now I just say, now I just say, oh, I don't drink. And yeah. then people are like, oh. And then they move on. Like, no one cares. <laughs> that is, that's I'm thinking, one of the first things. That's one of the first things I learned from you, Catherine, was that no was a complete sentence. And really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, I, I still have to remind myself of that, that I don't have to offer excuses. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Because when I'm offering excuses, that's a form of dishonesty. And uh, a, a, I agree. A, an excuse of any sort. And I, I know it was, I think someone had advised me at one point, you know, early in sobriety, early in sobriety, to use the um, antibiotics excuse. If I were to use that with my friends, they would have laughed. You know, I mean, because it did not matter. You know, what I was on, I was always going to have a glass of wine out, or two, or five, however many. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but you know, I have um, gotten much more comfortable in just saying I don't drink and not, you know, and and I feel like. I don't drink, that's that's a complete sentence. And people generally, they respect that. And they they don't offer follow-up questions to it. So, and if they do, I just gauge my comfort level with that person. Yeah, it's, I mean, a follow-up question is rare. And, and then I kind of feel like when it happens, somebody says, well, did you always or did you quit? Be like, no, re- reached my quota. I think I learned yeah, that from Amanda. Okay. Yeah. Reach my quota or whatever. Um, let's let's kind of talk about how how we're, we've already weaved in a lot of things about how honesty helps us stay sober. But I'm curious what you guys think about the evolution of your idea of honesty. So, like for example, 
for several months, I just couldn't call myself the A word. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew I had a drinking problem. I knew I could not drink. That was clear. But, like, I really struggled with saying I'm an alcoholic. And then I got to know people like you guys and then said, oh, well, okay, wait. Yeah, this does make sense. I, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck. And then I've, I've just, I've really evolved. Like, well, I can't go to recovery meetings because, I don't know why. I just I was afraid of, like I didn't want people in my business. Like they, they I don't need other people in my business. That was like a big thing for me. That was the isolation. Like I don't want I don't I don't want to tell other people that I don't know like my deepest darkest secrets. I'm like, what is this anyway? Um, and then I realized that talking to other sober people made me feel a lot better. So okay, so then I start going to meetings more. And I was like, oh, I actually kind of like this. But I'm not going to do any of that other stuff that they're talking about. But then I start doing that. And even, like, meetings itself, I was like, well, I can't go every day. Don't you people know how busy I am? Now I go every day. <laughs> I'm like, so for me, I kind of feel like my my honesty keeps evolving. And I'm just wondering what your experiences are with that. What about you, Jill? Well, my honesty regarding going to recovery meetings, um, I just, when I first had to, you know, introduce myself as an alcoholic, for the first probably three, four months, like, my voice would shake and every time I would say it. And I would cry because it was like the world was sort of crashing around me. And I'd come to, you know, it was like, how did I possibly get to this place where I'm in a meeting and I'm seeing that I'm an alcoholic? And how are these other people who have been sober for a considerable amount of time saying that it's just greed? You know, it was just really confounding for me. But I have, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I no longer, I, I, I'm not embarrassed of the fact that I am an alcoholic. And I think that um, I don't have shame around it anymore. But that has, that has taken a lot of time and a lot of conversations with, with my family, who are, for the most part, they're non-alcoholic. And, um, you know, they're not embarrassed by the fact that I am. And mm-hmm. that gives me a lot of um, a lot of comfort and, in, in coming forward in my honesty with other people and with myself about that. Um, and as far as getting involved even more so in recovery meetings, I, I was so, so desperate that... Um, I'm so terribly sad that I was really, really willing to um, to do whatever I was told to do. And I felt like going into these meetings and listening to people like you and Jean on the online blog was like um, was like learning to walk again. And you all were helping me do that, and all the women in the in the meetings that I went to helped me to do that. And a big part of my program is helping other people, other women, come to um, accept their, um, to to help them with their alcoholism. I mean, just to sum that up. Um, but I have also noticed in recovery that, um, and I don't know if we're going to touch on this or not, but 
when I start being dishonest now, even though I'm not in active addiction, I mean, I see that as me beginning to spiral out of control when I start making excuses, when I start being dishonest with myself and with other people. Because um, there's something I've learned. The further I get away from my active addiction, the more I see that my drinking had so little to do with my alcoholism. It was really, there was just so much um, dishonesty involved in it. And so when I start being dishonest again, it actually scares me. And um, and I tell myself to my sponsor, to other women, um, really, who, whoever I can tell, I just, I just open up about my yeah. dishonesty. Well, so let's let's touch on that then. So I, I mentioned it in the beginning um, about the 11 stages of relapse. So in October of 2014, we did a show called I Relapsed, Now What? And in it, we covered the 11 stages of relapse. And it's the last one is actually picking up a drink. And I was reviewing these, and I noticed how the root of so many of them is dishonesty in the form of not facing ourselves or or the truth or not wanting to be seen by others, and that effectively is dishonesty, as we said. So let me just sort of run through these because it's a lot of what you're saying here, Jill. Maybe we can talk about how it, this stuff can creep in now. So the stages of relapse start with mental changes, such as difficulty coping with stress and exhaustion, extreme thinking, which might sound like no one understands or my problems are too big, um, dishonesty, defensiveness, and isolation. Then it moves into attitude changes, such as self-reliance and pride, so I can recover without anyone's help. Uh, rationalizing, such as I deserve a break. Um, complacency about recovery. So, for example, I have some sober time under my belt. I must be okay now. And then that moves from adi- mental changes to attitude changes onto behavior changes. So, not actively engaging in our recovery. So, for example, not talking to other sober people, um, neglecting personal care, procrastinating in our daily affairs, and then ending in actually picking up a drink. Um, So those are the stages. So it sounds like what you're talking about is when you're feeling these mental and attitude changes kind of creep in, Mm -hmm. that can be really triggery. Catherine, I just read an article um, online, you know, one of those great things that pops up on Facebook, and it was how to tell if someone is lying, how to spot a liar. Mm. And one of the tells is if they're exaggerating. So if someone says, I was at the mall and this lady just totally started yelling at me. Um, So if they're, you know, using words like yelling at me or freaking out on me or like these sort of grand nonspecific words. And as soon as I read that, I realized that that's how I can tell when I'm telling myself a lie, is when I'm yes. using a big exaggeration. So like you said, when you when I think, no one understands me or everyone is so mm-hmm. stupid, you know, that's me telling myself a story to justify how I want to feel, to, to justify yes. being dishonest about my emotion. So maybe my emotion is I'm uncomfortable, but instead I want to make it other people are awful. <laughs> it's their fault I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, my therapist so, taught me that those those extreme words are um, flags for like dishonesty and immaturity. Yeah. So everyone, no one, always, never. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And they feed resentment, right? So then when we start to, it starts to justify us resenting other people. And we talk about resentment a lot on this show, that that resentment is at the heart of addiction, is mm-hmm. that that anger in us, those resentments for other people, the rest of the world, um, that just feeds our addiction like nobody's business. Like that is just super food for addiction. Yeah, and a big part of recovery is digging down and and really examining what you resent and why you resent it and what your role is in it, and mm-hmm. um, that so those kind of lies, those extreme words, that extreme feeding really feeds it, and it's important to know that if if you hear someone else talking like that, you kind of know, oh, I think they're kind of BSing me here, but you need to call yourself on that too because that's at the mm-hmm. heart of dishonesty. The one that's really sticking out to me here is isolation. And I think, you know, going back to I I mentioned this drinking dream that I had just last night, um, I'm I'm really feeling some of these these stages kind of kind of they're sniffing around the edges, I guess, of my of my recovery because I've been traveling an awful lot for work as you guys know that I do and um but then I've also been um, out of town on weekends. And so I haven't found, like, I'm out of my recovery routine and I'm kind of away from my recovery crew. And I'm used to that daily check-in with other sober people. And it's funny that it's 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 just a little bit isolating and, like, nothing hugely dramatic is happening, but the fact that I'm having a drinking dream tells me that I'm having some anxiety around that. And while it doesn't mean that I'm going to run out and have a drink after the show, because now I'm talking to you guys, so I feel more grounded. I have to get honest about the fact that it's Jill said it earlier of like telling on myself. That's why I'm, I'm telling you guys and everybody's listening to the show. Like I had a drinking dream I'm feeling isolated. Like, that's what, for me, I'm learning is honesty in recovery. Like, I have to say what's happening for me and how I'm feeling about it, even though that makes me feel like, oh, now I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't believe this, but we've come to the top of the hour. Um, it's always so great talking to everybody and we cover so much ground so before we close i'd like to go around and ask for your last comments or thoughts or you know what's going to stick with you or what you're going to take away from tonight's discussion so Jean, i'll start with you um i would just i want to say that when i first my first honest act was on my first day of sobriety when i told a friend the truth about how much i was drinking and I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And I told her, and it was such a relief. It was just such a relief to speak the truth. And I really realized that even though I wasn't a big liar, I, you know, I probably had a few pretty big lies in my life, but I wasn't a big liar. But I just had this big hard shell exterior that was composed of a lot of little lies. And for yeah. me, recovery has been dismantling that and just telling the truth about 
the big things and the little things. And I want to give a shout-out to my friend Anne because we met um, a few weekends ago and we were supposed to meet for dinner and she was late arriving to dinner. And she just came in and said, oh, sorry, I'm late. And then she started laughing. She's in recovery too and she says, don't you love being honest? Like before I got sober, I would have made up a reason why I was late. (laughs) But I know that you're in recovery and you'll understand and appreciate I'm just late. (laughs) Yep. And it comes back to what Jill said, which is honesty feels so good and so empowering that dishonesty is a little scary because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyone that's listening that's feeling scared about something you need to really face and and be honest about, just know that it's actually going to be okay and it, the truth is better. It's, it really is, and it'll make you stronger. I love that. So, Jill, our guest of honor, how about you? Yeah, I love that too, Jean. I, um, it reminded me that um, I, I take an exercise class that you have to sign up for in advance, and if you don't cancel the class within 12 hours and you get charged for it. And I wasn't going to argue the fact that I was going to get charged for it, but I felt like the next time I went into Pilates that I needed to make an excuse as to why I didn't cancel it and allow someone else to take my spot. And the instructor actually called me out and said, oh, right, you didn't cancel. And it was like my default to come up with an excuse as to why I didn't. And I really, I should have apologized. But I wasn't quite there yet, but I was proud of myself that I at least didn't make an excuse. And that is, that's really the cornerstone of my recovery, is if I try to be better than what it used to be. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect because my default is to be dishonest and to make excuses. And so oftentimes I just have to do the opposite of my instinct. And because yeah. I've just conditioned my mind for so long. And hopefully one day, you know, my instinct won't be to be dishonest. It will be to just be forthright. And, and I'm getting there. So um, so thank you so much for, for letting me be on here. On here. It was really an honor. Oh, Jill, I, I loved hearing everything that you had to say. Thank you. Yeah, you did great, and Jill. I have to. I just want to add, you know, to my this thought of is that true? I mean, I I've just found that everything that I told myself was impossible was actually not true. So maybe that goes to what Jill said of like not believing my first thought. Um, and I'm finding that honesty is a form of personal accountability and responsibility, and it's super empowering. Um, now that I just own everything that happens to me and I, and I don't let myself make excuses for myself or just sort of assume that something's impossible. And I don't know, it's just, it's a great form. And Jean kind of mentioned it earlier, finding your part in things this has been hugely empowering for me. So somebody who, like I said in the beginning, came from a trauma background and was really invested in the story of being the victim, um, now I'm kind of coming out of it and taking responsibility for my whole life. And it's that's amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling empowered by this conversation as well. So I, I think 
you both, Jean and Jill, for your honesty and for being here and part of my recovery. So as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and Ellie's blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions. And we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Good night, ladies. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, ladies. Good night, night, everyone. Bye.